you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we will be in verses 14 to 29. Mark chapter 9 will be in verses 14 to 29. And so seeing that it's been a while since we've been in Mark, let me give us some context. And so Mark's gospel is about Jesus. Jesus, he is the son of God. He is the king who brings the kingdom. In the first half of the gospel of Mark, it focuses on Jesus' identity, how he is the son. He came and he's preaching a message, preaching the good news, telling people to repent and to believe, and he performs many mighty acts. And these mighty acts, they authenticate his message, and they testify to his identity as the son, as the Christ. In the first half of Mark's gospel, it culminates in Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. After Peter, makes, after Peter makes this confession, Jesus commands the disciples to be silent about his identity. And in the book, it transitions to focusing more on Jesus' purpose and his coming, where he began to explicitly teach and talk about his death and resurrection. Last time we were in Mark, we saw him take Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain. He, he was transfigured before them. And as there were glorious things happening at the top of the mountain, we're about to see that there were discouraging things happening at the bottom. And so Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Then they came to the disciples... They saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. When it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions, the boy became like a corpse, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. After he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind could come out by nothing but prayer. You may be seated. And so our 
big idea for this passage is this. The Christian life should be marked by reliance upon Jesus in all things. I'll say it again. The Christian life should be marked by reliance upon Jesus in all things. The Christian life should be marked by reliance upon Jesus in all things. And from this passage, I have three points that we'll see. The first point is that we will see the problem of self-reliance. Then the power of the Son of God. Then the prioritization of prayer. So the power of, I mean, not the power, the problem of self-reliance, the power of the Son of God, the prioritization of prayer. So our first point, the problem of self-reliance. Look at verse 14. It says, when they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. And so Jesus and his inner circle of Peter, James, and John, they descend from this mountain. And they witness, they walk into an intense dispute. The nine disciples, they are in an aggressive argument with the scribes and a large crowd has surrounded them. It's like a middle school fight on a playground. And the whole class is surrounding them to watch this thing take place. You see, this argument is likely centered around casting out demons. You see, the scribes, they've already concluded that Jesus cast out demons by Beelzebul. And they're likely questioning the disciples about driving out demons. Why have they tried to drive out a demon? And who has given them this authority? Look at verse 15 and 16. It says, when the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing with them about? You see, to the the crowd's surprise and amazement, Jesus pulls up on the scene. And the attention is no longer on this argument, but upon the son. And he comes in and he asks them, what are you arguing about? You see, Jesus wants to know what's all the smoke about. You see, Jesus, he comes and he defends his disciples. He's pretty much telling the scribes that if you guys smoke with the disciples, they need to take it up with me. And so he's asking what they're arguing about. And verse 17, someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out. But they couldn't. You see, we, we see a desperate and helpless father speak up. This whole squabble started because this man brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus. The father has likely heard about Jesus' authority to cast out demons and believe that Jesus can do for his son what Jesus has done countless other times. And the father, he gives a vivid description of this disheartening situation. You see, look at the violence that the demon does to this boy. It says that the demon makes him mute. You see, God has created us with the ability to speak, to vocally communicate with one another. Yet the demon prevents the boy from speaking. The demon attacks him and violently throws him down as an attempt 
to destroy him. The demon causes the boy to foam and grind his teeth and become rigid. You see, this sounds like a severe case of epilepsy, which is real. And it's saddening to witness. But in this context, this is not caused by a disorder. It's not caused by a disease. But it's caused by demonic possession. And all of this is with the intent to destroy this little boy. A little boy. You see, demons, like their master Satan, are impartial. They hate everyone. Men, women, and children. You see, since sin has entered the world, Satan has been the ruler of this world. People are born in sin. They are in darkness and under Satan's power. You see, Satan, he deceives and destroys and labors for the destruction of all. And here we see that Satan comes after children. And when he comes after children, his purpose for coming after children is the same purpose he does with men and women. It's for their destruction. And he does this with children, whether it's through physical attacks or deceptive indoctrination. He labors for their destruction. And beloved, since Satan goes after the children while they are young, we should not be behind him in the race for our children. Parents, we should be proactively and persistently praying for our kids to be saved. We should be proclaiming the gospel to them and possibly catechizing them with the truths of God's word. Church, may we prioritize coming alongside of parents, proclaiming the gospel to their kids and praying for their salvation. Beloved, may we not be behind Satan in the race for our children. And speaking of children, let me talk to the children and the teens. Y'all, I want y'all to know that Satan is a real enemy who hates you and wants to destroy your life. He's more terrifying than the dark, and he's more dangerous than snakes. No one can defeat him on their own. Not your mom. Not your dad, not even the Avengers. Seriously, though, no one can defeat him. The only one who can defeat him is Jesus. And he has defeated Satan. He's defeated Satan, sin, and death through his death for sin and his victorious resurrection from the grave. Children, the only way that you can be delivered from Satan, sin, and death is by trusting in Jesus Christ. I would implore you to trust in him. And I would encourage you that on your way home, ask your parents on why, about why is trusting in Jesus necessary to be saved from Satan, sin, and death. I can guarantee you they'd be excited to tell you. You see, in these two verses, this father, he gives this description of what's happening. This father, he is distressed. He is helpless. He brings his son to Jesus. And look what he says. He says, I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. And you see, Jesus was gone, but the dad asked the disciples to cast out the demon. And it's likely that the dad asked the disciples, because there's a principle in discipleship, that you become like the one you follow. 
that you can do what your discipler does. And he's not crazy in asking them. Because earlier in Mark, we saw that in Mark chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Jesus gave the apostles authority to cast out demons. In Mark chapter 6, when Jesus commissions the disciples, in verse 13, it says that they casted out demons. And so they've been successful in the past. It's likely that they expected to be successful yet again. They're probably like, we got this. You know, they, they've driven out demons, and so maybe they can do it again. They thought that they could. And here's the thing, that they tried to drive it out. But to their surprise, they failed. All nine of them. And now we see that this desperate dad, he is discouraged. The question for us is, why did the disciples fail? See, I believe they failed because they were self-reliant. They probably began feeling themselves, thinking that they can do this in their own strength. They may have forgotten that their authority over demons was given to them by Jesus, that it's by his power and not theirs. You see, they're successful in casting out demons when their reliance is upon Jesus and not themselves. And we'll see that more clearly at the end of this passage. And beloved, it is the same with us. Now, we can't be demon-possessed because when Christ saved us, he delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, and he has sealed us with his spirit. Yet, we are constantly confronted with sin and temptation. And beloved, when faced with sin and temptation... Our ability to overcome is not through self-reliance, but by God's Spirit and His grace. You see, when we're reliant upon ourselves, we have become overcome by temptation and being ensnared in sin. You see, some of you may be ensnared in sins that by God's grace you used to overcome. And you may wonder, what has changed well, beloved, could it be that you exchange dependence upon Christ for dependence upon yourself? You see, if we're not careful, we can begin attributing our victories over sin and temptation to ourselves instead of God's grace and help and strength. We can become self-reliant. And self-reliance is deceptive. It deceives us into thinking that we're strong when we're actually weak. What we do is we can easily overestimate ourselves and underestimate sin and temptation. It also has grave consequences. Victories over sin are turned into defeats. We go from freedom to ensnarement. You see, this is the problem of self-reliance. Scripture warns us of self-reliance. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, Whoever thinks he stand must be careful to not fall. Beloved, where are the areas where you think that you stand? Where are the areas where you're likely to be self-reliant? Because those will be the same areas where you will likely fall into sin. Beloved, this will be good to discuss with other members and pray for one another about you see, in our flesh, we are prone towards self-reliance. It takes work to remain dependent upon Christ. 
We need to be in the word and in prayer, praying for humility and remembering that Christ is mighty, not us. Remember that we need to be dependent upon him and not ourselves. This is a good prayer to pray for members as you pray through the membership directory. Because we're prone towards self-reliance. And we need to be praying that we will humble ourselves and remain dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, we've seen the problem of self-reliance. So now let's look at the power of the Son of God. Look at verse 19. He replied to them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? You see, Jesus, he hears the situation and and he responds. Now, commentaries differ on who Jesus is actually addressing. Some say that he's talking to the crowd. Most say that he's talking to the disciples. Now, I'll be honest. I'll show my cards. I believe that Jesus is addressing the disciples. And I say that for a few reasons. One, we've already seen him in Mark. In Mark, we've already seen how he has repeatedly addressed and rebuked them for their unbelief. Mark chapter 4, verse 40. Mark chapter 6, verse 52. Mark chapter 8, verses 18 to 21. But also, peep the personal relational terms that Jesus uses. He says, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? You see, he has put up with and he has been with the disciples for quite some time now. Well, some may wonder, well, if he's talking to the disciples, then why did he say, you unbelieving generation? I'll say that's a really good question. I would say he said this because of the disciples' lack of faith. You see, their lack of faith has placed them in the same category as an unbelieving generation. To where you can't distinguish the two in this specific situation. You see, Jesus, he is disappointed because at crunch time, his disciples were unsuccessful. And they were unsuccessful because of their lack of faith. Now, one may wonder, well, preacher, how so? You just said that they were self-reliant. Now you're saying it's their lack of faith. Well, I would say the other side of the coin of self-reliance is unbelief. You see, to rely on self is to not depend on Jesus. And to not depend on him is to not trust in him. You see, you can't have a high view of self-reliance and simultaneously maintain a high view of Jesus. It just won't work. That's not how it works. And though Jesus is disappointed, he is still patient with them. He doesn't throw in the towel with them. He doesn't say, I'm done, and he starts over with new disciples. He continues to bear with them and instruct them. He is patient with them. And beloved, know that Jesus ain't done with us either. Even when we show unbelief, our Savior is not done with us. He has saved us. He loves us. He's not in heaven begrudgingly stomping his feet at us. Instead, he's at the right hand of God, lovingly interceding for us. He is advocating for us. And like for the disciples, his patience towards us is rooted in his love for us. So he says, how long must I be with you? 
And he tells them to bring the boy to him. And look what happens. Look at verse 20. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. You see, the demon recognized Jesus and began to violently attack the boy. He attacked him just as the father described. Jesus witnesses this attack for himself. Now one may wonder, why would the demon begin convulsing when it saw Jesus? I would say because the demon knows who Jesus is. The demon knows that Jesus is the son of God in human flesh. See, the, see Jesus and demons are enemies. And this convulsion typifies the enmity as the demon begins to attack the boy. Y'all, real quick, that mug keep going. It's distracting me. And so I'm just going to use this handheld mic, all right? <laughs> I know it's probably distracting y'all if it's distracting me. And so, yeah, the convulsion, it typifies the enmity between Jesus and the demon. And so the demon begins to attack the boy. And look at verse 21. Jesus says, how long has this been happening? He asked the father. You see, Jesus, he witnesses this disheartening situation. He turns to the dad and asks, how long? Now, this question is not asked out of curiosity, but out of compassion. You see, like one, when you see or hear someone is suffering, you'd likely ask, how long has this been going on? You see, we see a glimpse of Jesus' compassion, and look how the father responds. He says, from childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. You see, this has been happening for quite some time now. Seems like it may be years. And not only does the demon do th does this, but the demon actually does worse things to the boy. It throws him into fire. It throws him into different waters, all with one purpose, the boy's destruction. And we see the father is desperate for deliverance of his son. You see, he may know that Jesus is compassionate towards those who suffer. And so he pleads for Jesus' pity and help. The father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Y'all don't miss this. The dad said, if you can do anything. The father previously believed that Jesus could drive out the demon. This is why he brought his son to Jesus. But now, it's likely that he has doubts because of the disciples' failure. You see, he's uncertain if Jesus can do it. His logic may be, since the disciples failed, Jesus may fail also. You see, he has placed limitations on the power of God. Not that Jesus has said or done anything that would influence doubt, but the man has doubts. And y'all, this is an incorrect way to ask Jesus for help. You see, the phrase, if you can, conveys doubt, not faith. Such phrase dishonors Jesus because it calls into question his ability and his authority. 
And beloved, if the question was dishonoring when the dad asked, how much more is it dishonoring when we who are in Christ have this heart posture? When we question Jesus' ability. You see, we know more about Jesus than this dad. We know of his power to save. We know of his death for our sin and his victorious resurrection. We know that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. We know that he has been exalted at the right hand of God far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. We know that he has secured us and that nothing and no one can snatch us out of his hand. And though we know all these things, there are still times where we wonder if you can do this. Beloved, what is this for you? When in your heart you begin to question Jesus' ability to help. It could be the salvation of a relative who's been lost for a long time. It could be the healing of a loved one or yourself. It could be a, a, a marriage, a family who's been trying to conceive and haven't been able to have a baby for quite some time. You see, in any of these scenarios and in all things, we should remember who Jesus is. We should remember his grace, his power, and not doubt his ability. Beloved, may we remind one another of the person and work of Christ. And may we exhort one another to not doubt his power, but to trust him. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to him, if you can. Everything is possible for the one who believes. You see, for Jesus, the dad's words, if you can, stood out like a sore thumb. You see, the phrase, if you can, places limitations on the power of God, and Jesus wasn't having any of that. Jesus corrects the dad, and he does it with a promise. He says that everything is possible for the one who believes. You see, y'all, the dad placed the burden on Jesus' ability. But the burden isn't on Jesus' ability. But it's on the man's faith. You see, the problem isn't Jesus' authority, but the dad's lack of faith. And so Jesus, he addresses it. Now, when he says all things are possible for the one who believes, he is not communicating that faith has this magical power. That if you just believe in anything, then possibilities are limitless. That's not what Jesus is saying. You see, it's not just the fact that you just have some sort of faith, but it's the object of one's faith that ultimately matters. Also notice that Jesus isn't demanding a certain amount of faith, but just that one believes in him. You see, the intensity of one's faith isn't what makes things possible. Again, it is the object of one's faith. Jesus has all power. So if he's the object of your faith, then all things are possible. Jesus says that all things are possible. Jesus has the power to do what we're asking for, whether it be to save a lost loved one or to heal or to allow a married couple to conceive. Beloved, he has the authority and the power to do it. We can trust him in these things. Now, just because he says that all things are possible, it doesn't mean that all things will happen. 
You see, this is where we pray in faith for him to act, believing wholeheartedly that he can do it, while knowing that he doesn't promise it and that he's not obligated to. This is, in in these situations, like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, we are to pray, not my will, but your will be done. And we are to trust him in his will, whatever he wills. Remember that he is good, and he is doing good to us in the midst of it. He says, everything is possible for the one who believes. And if you're not a Christian, I am glad you're here. I want you to see that when Jesus is talking about believing, as I said previously, I'll say it again. He's not talking about having faith for faith's sake. He's not saying that as long as you believe in anything, then you're good. You see, the object of your faith is essential. And friends, you trust in something, whether it's yourself or some sort of science or a false religion. The question for you is not if you have faith, but it's in what or in whom have you placed your faith and trust. And I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the only sufficient object of one's faith. Only believing in him results in salvation. Faith in anyone or in anything else will result in you being put to shame. But those who trust in Jesus will not be put to shame. And so I would implore you this day to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Believe and know the truth that he is the son of God who became man, who walked this earth in perfect obedience, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross, where he bore the sins of all who would trust in him. And three days later, he resurrected from the grave, and he offers forgiveness of sins and salvation to all who would trust in him. Friends, I would tell you to trust in him today and be saved by his grace. If you would like, you can talk with any of the members after service about what does it mean to trust in Jesus. The members will gladly have this conversation with you. Look at verse 24. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. You see, this dad, he was picking up what Jesus was putting down. He understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And so he made a confession and a plea. He confessed his belief in Jesus' authority and simultaneously acknowledged his doubt and pleaded for help. You see, we see faith mixed with doubt. His faith is like ours. It is far from perfect. And yet there is faith. This man, he is honest with Jesus. He's not content with his unbelief. He pleads for help from the one who can help him. Y'all, this transparency is instructive for us. Beloved, are we this honest with Jesus? You see, he knows when there is unbelief. He wouldn't be surprised if we confessed it to him. In fact, I think he would be honored because we're acknowledging our unbelief in faith and we're pleading in faith for his assistance. Beloved, we could be honest with Jesus about our unbelief. If we seek his help in this, he will help us. 
And y'all, one way that he helps us is through his body. As we confess our unbelief and process these things with one another so that members can ask follow-up questions and pray for you and help you get to the root of your unbelief, exposing where and why there is unbelief, and then remind you of who God is, all in the hopes that we may repent of our unbelief. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5 says this, Counsel in a person's heart is deep water, but a person of understanding draws it out. So friends, may we be honest with Jesus, and may we also be honest with one another about our unbelief. Look at verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. You see, in response to this man's confession of faith, Jesus cast out the demon. And here we see he gives the demon a double rebuke. He says, come out of him and never enter him again. You see, Jesus didn't tussle with the demon. He didn't strain his muscles. He only spoke to the demon. And look what happened. Verse 26 and 27. Then it came out of him, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. You see, the demon came out of him. And once again, we see Jesus' sovereign authority displayed. You see, demons who are Jesus' enemies have to submit to Jesus' command. And that's the case because of who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He has this kind of authority. He is the King who brings the kingdom. And notice when it says that the demon came out, the boy looked dead. It says that he became like a corpse. The crowd thought he was dead, but the boy wasn't dead. It only says that he became like a corpse, not that he became a corpse, not that he died. But look what Jesus did. He raised him by the hand. Now that phrase, raised him by the hand, should lead us to think about what Jesus did for Jairus' daughter. He raised her by the hand when he raised her up from the dead. Mark is intentionally doing this, alluding to that, having us to think of a picture of death and resurrection, though this child did not die. You see, what we see here is that Jesus defeated Satan. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the devil's works. And here, Jesus destroyed a work of Satan. And did you catch it? The picture of Satan's defeat was through the image of the boy's death and resurrection. And all of this prefigures how Jesus will defeat Satan. You see, he went and died on the cross for the sins of his people, bearing God's wrath for our sins, and he was buried, and three days later, he resurrected from the grave. He rose victoriously. You see, through Jesus' death and resurrection, he defeated Satan, sin, and death. By God's grace, through the work of Christ, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. Beloved, behold the power of the Son of God. You see, he not only cast out the demons from the boy, 
but he has also freed us from Satan's power. You see, what happened to the boy was a picture of what Christ did for us. You see, we went from death to life, from darkness to light, and it was all by the power of Christ. Behold the power of the Son of God. He is an all, He is the all-sufficient Savior, and he is mighty to save all who trust in him. And so we've seen the problem of self-reliance. We've seen the power of the Son of God. And now let's look at the prioritization of prayer. Look at verses 28 and 29. After he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. You see, they go to the crib. And if you've been tracking in Mark's gospel, this is a common place for private instruction for the disciples. And we see the nine disciples, they're curious. They ask about their inability to drive out these demons, this demon. And Jesus tells them that this kind can only be driven out by total reliance upon God expressed through prayer. You see, in this response, Jesus, he gives instruction and an implicit critique. The instruction is that there are kinds of demons that can only be driven out by faith in Jesus expressed through prayer. You see, all demons are driven out by God's power. And some are driven out by faith expressed through prayer. He teaches us here, Jesus teaches us that prayer is effectual. So effectual that it's the very means by which some demons are expelled. Now one may wonder, well, what is prayer? The Truth and Grace Catechism says that prayer is talking with God. And in this context, it's in faith petitioning God to do what only he can do by his sovereign power. You see, we are to pray. Saints, the scripture teaches us that the normal way to pray is that we pray to God the Father, in the name of Jesus, the Son, and by his Spirit. And in this context, what he's talking about when praying is that we are pleading for God to act. And so he gives instruction, but he also gives an implicit critique. And that critique is that the disciples didn't pray. They may have tried everything else, but they didn't pray. They relied on their strength, but they didn't rely on God's power through prayer. And that's why they were unsuccessful. You see, here Jesus clearly communicates the prioritization of prayer. That our faith in Jesus, our reliance upon him is clearly depicted through prayer. One may wonder, well, how so? Well, it's because when we're praying, we are acknowledging our weaknesses, our limitations, and we're acknowledging our dependence upon God. We acknowledge that God is powerful, and we are pleading in faith for his help. Beloved, do you prioritize prayer the way Jesus does? You see, oftentimes Christians don't see prayer as a priority, but a last resort. When life gets busy, Normally, prayer is the first thing that's neglected. 
And the reason that that is the case is because we belittle it. Prayerlessness exposes pride and it reveals self-reliance. Beloved, do you pray? You see, when ensnared in sin or really, really struggling with sin, I just wonder, like, how are our prayer lives? How is it? Specifically in that area. You see, in my life, the seasons when I'm struggling with sin the most and with temptation the most are the very same seasons when my prayer life is almost non-existent. I'm not dependent upon the Lord, but I'm depending upon myself. I wonder, how much more victories over sin would we enjoy if we relied upon God's strength through prayer? You see, we are weak but through prayer, God can strengthen us to overcome sin and temptation. Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., he describes prayer in this way. He says that prayer advertises our dependence upon God. You see, we are weak and we are needy and we are in need of God's help for many things. Scripture is fully aware of it. Scripture shows us this thing, these things, and Scripture teaches us constantly and exhorts us to pray. A few things. We are to pray in faith, asking God for wisdom. We are to stay awake and pray so that we won't enter into temptation. In times of need, what are we to do? We are to pray. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. In light of this, what are we to do? Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Beloved, when we have burdens, we cast them upon the Lord through prayer. In ministry, we should pray for open doors for the gospel. We should pray for boldness in preaching the gospel. We should pray for conversions. In the church, we should pray for the preaching of God's word. We should pray for one another's sanctification. We should pray for one another's perseverance. We should be a people of prayer. Scripture teaches us to pray about all things. Pray without ceasing. Scripture prioritizes prayer. And beloved, we should be a people of prayer who seek the Lord. We should be prioritizing it. Our trust and reliance upon the Lord is clearly depicted through praying. Beloved, if Jesus prioritizes prayer, then how much more should we? May we be a praying people. May our lives be marked by faith in Jesus. May we seek him and rely upon him in all things, praying about everything. And may this mark our lives until the day where we see him, when our faith turns into sight. We are one day closer to that being our reality. Let's pray. My Father in heaven, you are the great and mighty king who is all-powerful. You're not lacking in strength. You're not lacking in power. We are. We need you.
Father, may we depend upon Christ all of our days. May we repent of our self-reliance. May we behold his mighty power and constantly seek you in prayer of all things. Lord, may we be a people who are devoted to praying, who trust you and look to you and depend upon you and not ourselves. Now, may we pray hastening the day for Christ's return, reminding one another that he is coming soon. And on that day, our faith will be turned to sight and we will see the one who has saved us, who has redeemed us, who has freed us from darkness. You have you, as you have called us into your light. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, as we saw in this passage, our faith should be in Jesus. He alone should be our hope. And in light of that truth, we're going to sing as in response to the sermon, we're going to sing that Christ is our hope in life and in death. So please stand as we sing our final hymn.